Welcome. This is EIG, Milwaukee's philanthropic community, with your host, Jill Economo, on News Talk 1130 WISN. Good morning and welcome to Milwaukee's philanthropic community brought to you by Ellen Becker Investment Group. EIG has three locations where you can reach out or visit us, either in Pewaukee, which is our home office, or in Whitefish Bay. And we also have a Florida location in Bonita Springs, which sounds really good right about now, right? I'm your host, Jill Economo, and I'm the Director of Community Outreach. So welcoming in a new year is exciting, isn't it? With all our goals, our resolutions, our expectations, it's easy to get excited about a new beginning and all that it offers. And that's great. I, for one, am looking forward, as I'm sure many of you are, to good things to come. But given the year that we've just had with all its challenges, its mental, emotional, and physical highs and lows, we thought it might be especially helpful to talk about a topic of discussion that's becoming more and more common. Now, some might express that they've just experienced a year from hell, while others may say that 2020, although it wasn't great, it wasn't that bad either. Maybe it wasn't all bad because you got to spend extra time with your family, or maybe you experienced just a little anxiety, fear, or uncertainty. But whether it's major adversity or a minor setback, either of these scenarios can lead to mental and emotional challenges if they're not dealt with. In fact, when I was doing some research, it was interesting to find that in late June of 2020, 40% of U.S. adults reported struggling with mental health, with the most common illness being anxiety, which affects 40 million adults, or roughly 18% of the population. One in six youth aged 6 to 17 experience a mental health disorder each year. And actually, many people suffer from more than one disorder at a given time. In particular, depression tends to coexist with substance abuse and anxiety disorders. Depression and anxiety cost the global economy $1 trillion each year in lost productivity. Depression alone costs the nation about $210 billion annually. What about statistics closer to home? There was actually a study done that showed the prevalence of mental illness across the country in 2020, and they found that Wisconsin was number 35 of 50 states. Interesting, but staggering statistics. So it's, it's obviously a topic worth discussing. So let's learn about what we can do if we or a loved one is struggling with some minor anxiety issues or a more severe mental health disorder. My first guest today is Mary Madden, Executive Director from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI. Welcome to the show today, Mary. Thank you, Jill. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Actually, you've participated in our radio show before, telling us all the great things that you guys are doing. So thanks for coming back and joining us again. I've shared a number of various statistics that are overwhelming and can actually be quite scary. Uh, we, We recognize that getting help yourself or offering to support to someone is an important step in changing these statistics for the better. So share with us how NAMI is helping to make this topic of mental health not so scary and overwhelming, and maybe make it an easier conversation to have with individuals or families. Sure. Thanks again, Jill, uh, for having me today. And um, 
at NAMI, we fully believe that having a conversation about mental health should be as easy as having a conversation about a broken ankle or a sprained finger. Um, but before we get started, I'd like to clarify some changes that happened recently, which isn't really changing the services we provide from a core level. And then I'll address some of the services that we provide more in depth. Um, NAMI Southeast Wisconsin is a newly merged organization and it is um, NAMI Waukesha and NAMI Greater Milwaukee that came together as of January 1st to merge. And in that merge, we also picked up the territory of Jefferson County who has not had uh, a NAMI for the last couple of years. And so we're really excited about the opportunities uh, that will present themselves for us to um, create new programming and expand current programming to meet the needs of all three of those counties. So one organization, but yet your, your, your programs or the services that you provide are the same. Why don't you go into a little bit uh, what those services are? Absolutely. So before I go into our specific services, I would like you to ask you, Jill, and the listeners today to imagine that their loved one has started to exhibit some behaviors that are not consistent with who they are. Perhaps they used to shower every day and now they go three or more days without showering and getting out of their pajamas. They're suddenly quick to become angry or seem to be sleeping too little or too much. You try to broach the issues with them, but that only makes them angrier. So what do you do? Who do you talk to? You have no idea what's going on. Um, if you're a family who hasn't really dealt with mental health issues before, you don't really know who to call. As I mentioned before, if, you had, if your loved one had a broken ankle, you'd know exactly what to do. Um, but to call uh, regarding mental health issues, there's a lack of understanding and knowledge about what steps to even take. Even sometimes those who understand the steps to take are reluctant because of the stigma associated with mental health conditions. And that's really where NAMI can help. The types of services that we provide at NAMI um, are organized and operated by those with lived experience. And when I say people with lived experience, I mean people who are living in recovery with their own mental health conditions or family members who have a loved one um, that they've supported and provided care for. And so um, if you look at those two buckets of services for um, what we call our peer programs, these are people living with mental health conditions, helping other people living with mental health conditions. And those services are support groups. There's a peer-to-peer -peer recovery class and one-on-one -on -one peer support. So somebody could call our office and, and just say, I need some support, I need some education. I'm not sure where to go for assistance. Can you help me? And then we have family programs. And again, we have support groups. We have a family-to-family -family class and one-on-one -on -one family support. And all of the people who manage these programs and services are uh, trained by NAMI to be able to do so. Um, utilizing their own recovery journey to assist others. And along with the family support, we have a, a special program for parents and caregivers. And in those that bucket of programs, we've got a basic six-week class. It's an education class for parents and caregivers who have a child under the age of 18 who's exhibiting some mental health concerns. We have a parent peer support group, and we have a project called the Lighthouse Project that works specifically 
with families who have children in school that are struggling in school because of mental health concerns. You mentioned kids, and and I would imagine educating families, uh, including the kids, is so crucial in that because there's a number of young kids struggling, right? I mean, what would you suggest a parent do if their kid is struggling? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really tough one for parents. Um, you know, again, if you were imagining that scenario, but we're thinking about a 13 or 14 year old boy or girl suddenly angry, hygiene isn't where it used to be, they're isolating, sleeping all the time, spending too much time on social media. Is it a mental health issue? Is it hormones? Is it normal teenage angst? We hear this from parents and caregivers all the time. They don't want to label their children as having a mental illness. And so they, you know, they drag their feet. Sometimes we even hear from the kids themselves that they are asking their parents for help. And their parents are powerless um, as to know what step to take. It's really difficult for parents to reach out and, and get that sort of help for their children. So by contacting NAMI, they can talk with other parents who have been there. Sometimes they can sort out those issues just by having a conversation with somebody or coming to a parent peer support group or going to that basics class. And, you know, we really, if there is a need to get treatment, the earlier the, earlier the intervention, the better the prognosis for recovery. It's so great that you have all those services available to the individual, but the families as well. There have actually been some new mental health concerns brought up, which may require a change in some services. So stay tuned to discuss this further as we continue our discussion with Mary Madden from NAMI. We'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in. This is EIG, Milwaukee's philanthropic community. With your host, Jill Economo, on News Talk 1130 WISN. Welcome back. I'm your host, Jill Economo, and I'm talking today with Mary Madden, Executive Director of NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. There was a new CDC study that was done that found that almost 41% of respondents are struggling with mental health issues stemming from the pandemic, both related to the coronavirus pandemic itself and the measures that are put in place to contain it, including the physical distancing and the stay-at-home orders. So Mary, what kind of concerns are you seeing with COVID or maybe in other areas? Thanks, Jill. Um, you know, the, the biggest one is the isolation, really. We're hearing from people who have never had to seek mental health services before, who are really having trouble coping. Um, or those actually who have developed coping skills, but in this changing environment, have had many of their protective factors taken away from them. For instance, you know, maybe they were somebody who, um, you know, coped by being able to go to the gym every day or go out and have coffee with somebody every day, or just really being able to go to work. And that isolation, um, you know, we're, we, are, we are creatures who need human contact, other human contact, and that isolation is um, just so, has been so detrimental for so many people. You know, we, we see further drain on uh, teachers, healthcare workers, grocery store personnel, our, you know, our truck drivers, police and fire and other first responders. They, you know, the, the struggle for them is immense. There is a great deal of pressure being put on them, um, and especially early on in the pandemic, to keep things moving while everybody else kind of hunkered down. 
and they, you know, you talk about self-care, they don't have any time for self-care. And so when does a person get to the breaking point? When do they, their coping skills, when do they not work anymore? The increased time on social media, not just for, you know, adults, but for kids, we're really seeing that have an effect on people. Um, I think as we all know, social media can present things uh, in people's lives that maybe their lives are perfect. And so you, you look at somebody's social media page and think, well, what's wrong with me? I don't have this happy life. Or, um, you know, there's misinformation that often goes around social media. And, and so, um, you know, that leaves people feeling confused and not understanding what to believe. So, you know, all of these things put together and then not being able to, you know, sort them out with your, um, your normal support systems is, is really causing some hardship for people. What about your staff? Are you finding any concerns with your staff in terms of keeping up with the demand? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't think my staff, um, you know, our staff at NAMI Southeast is is all that unique. Many people in in this field are uh, struggling to not only keep up with the demand, but to make the the, um, interactions meaningful. Prior to the pandemic, everything we did was in person. And when people seek services from NAMI, it's often a family member who hasn't had anybody to talk to about um, the journey that they've been on with their loved one. There's hugs, there's tears, there's, you know, hope that is provided from person to person. And as you can imagine, trying to do that over a Zoom call or a phone call is less than desirable. And my staff, just like everybody else, are dealing with the other effects of COVID. We've got parents who are trying to work full-time and also guide their children and and cope with their own illness or that of a loved one. And um, it's it's really, really challenging. I think, um, you know, one of the things that we've really learned um, through COVID, or I hope we're learning, is, is that we should all be a little more gentle with ourselves and with our staff and more flexible because... The, the flexibility is really what people need right now um, in order to, you know, maintain their jobs, maintain their home lives um, and their families. Absolutely. I know he, we at Ellen Becker here, we usually have so many things going on in our education center and, you know, things have been shut down and we're just starting to come back around again. And I host a Bible study that we meet every other week and there's plenty of hugs normally to go around. And I'm hearing from people that, you know, we just need that human element of touch again. And it's like, well, we're not going to be able to do that. You know, we can gather, but we're going to have to remain socially distant. And sometimes it's just being in physical proximity to someone, even if it's, you know, within uh, six feet apart or 10 feet apart, wearing a mask. It's just the idea of being with someone that is helpful. Um, What about stigma? You know, I understand that's a big part of people not reaching out for help. Can you explain how that plays a part in the reluctance to seek treatment? It continues to confound me that stigma is such a huge part of people being reluctant to seek treatment. If there was any other organ in your body that was not um, doing well, that was sick, um, that had, you know, a disease, you would seek help for it. And so why people are reluctant to do that 
when their brain is not functioning properly is a very sad state of affairs for us. And, and, you know, we can go into the history of it, but the reality is, is that there is still so much thought that is out there that it there it's a character weakness if you have a mental health condition that somehow you can just pull yourself up by your bootstraps um, and and fix it all just get out of bed and you'll feel better is often heard and even as uh, being in this field myself for 35 years sometimes it's hard for me to understand with my own family members why they can't just somehow will themselves to be better. In my head, I know that they can't. In my heart, I want them to so badly. Stigma is such a huge issue that, um, you know, there's a collaboration of organizations and individuals with the Wisconsin Initiative for Stigma Elimination to really look at how can we eradicate this once and for all from our society, from our hospital care systems, so that people don't feel ashamed to, to seek out help. Hmm. So there's actually a program wrapped around this idea of stigma because it's so prevalent. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. Well, uh, we'd love to learn more, uh, but we only have a certain amount of time available. So in the interest of time, Mary, what's one thing or maybe two that our listeners can do to help someone or themselves when they're dealing with mental health concerns? Well, I'm going to give you two easy ones, and they sound so basic, but um, they can make all the difference in the world. The first one is reach out for yourself. Don't be ashamed to reach out for help. It is not a character flaw. Pick up the phone and call NAMI, call a friend, reach out. It's okay to not be okay. And the second one is, is the same, and that's reach out. But now I'm talking about reach out to somebody that you know is struggling, if it's a family member and or, or a neighbor, referring to what you said, Jill, about, you know, maybe we can't hug people right now, but you could stand there in front of them. You could, you know, bring something and drop it off at their house. It makes all the difference in the world if you reach out and somebody else reaches in. Absolutely. So we, the, the important thing here in, if, somebody takes, uh, our listeners take one thing with them, it's reach out. Yeah. So uh, lots of good stuff here. Thank you so much, Mary, for joining me today and sharing your expertise on a topic that is uh, much talked about these days. So I appreciate you participating with us. Thank you, Jill. Before we go, before we, we break here, can you just give us contact information, Mary? Like what's the best way if people want to reach out? Is it a phone number? Is it a website, Facebook page? What's the best way for, for someone to get to you? Well, as you can imagine, as a newly merged organization, we're still fixing up all of our marketing materials. So I'm going to say today, the best way to get a hold of us is go to our Facebook page, NAMI Southeast Wisconsin. You will have find all the information there. If you're in Milwaukee, you can call the Milwaukee office. If you're in Waukesha, you can call the off- Waukesha office. Everything is there for you, including a list of our programs and services available. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Studies have shown that mental health in the United States is worsening among all age groups, and it looks different for each person affected. While this is because of a number of factors, one fact stands out. Many people are not receiving the treatment they deserve. As Mary was talking about, stigma around mental health and lack of access to care are driving many people away from getting the care they need. 
So stay tuned and we'll address this issue when we return. We'll be right back. You're listening to EIG, Milwaukee's philanthropic community, with your host, Jill Economo, on News Talk 1130 WISN. Welcome back to Milwaukee's Philanthropic Community, brought to you by Ellen Becker Investment Group. I'm your host, Jill Economo, and my next guest today is Sue McKenzie-Dix, VP of Healthy Culture at Rogers Behavioral Health and the Wisconsin Initiative for Stigma Elimination, or WISE. Welcome to the show today. Thanks, Jill. Mary was uh, from NAMI mentioned that her organization is part of WISE, which again is the Wisconsin Initiative for Stigma Elimination. My understanding is that uh, this WISE is a coalition of mental health organizations and advocates that come together to reduce the stigma around Wisconsin. How does behavioral health treatment at Rogers and stigma reduction relate to your work at Rogers and with WISE? Okay, thanks, Jill, for that question. I'm going to kind of walk us through it. I'm going to start with this whole notion of stigma. Um, What do we mean? So basically, when I think of stigma, it is false ideas that over time become ingrained in our beliefs. We don't choose that, oftentimes through media or other ways, these false ideas, and they become a part of our belief system that then leads to some discriminatory actions. And so stigma can turn inward. So if I believed, for instance, that someone that is more emotional than me has a problem and I've begun to label them, or if I believe that someone who has a difficult time completing assignments is should just be able to manage that themselves and it's okay for me to be angry at them versus supporting them. If, if I start to have those beliefs and then I find myself challenged with completing assignments or I find myself maybe more emotional than I've been in the rest of my life and I start to see those changes in myself, I will carry those same negative ideas about myself. And, you know, I, I just ask you, Jill, to think, when, when you're having a time when you're feeling really down on yourself, how do you behave? Oftentimes, when I'm feeling bad about myself, I'm not my best person, right? I might, I right. might wait, I don't even want to hang out with you, Jill, right? Or I may hang out with you and be pretty cranky, or I, I just might be apathetic. I don't care, whatever, right? That's kind of a normal human reaction to not feeling good about yourself that we can tie back to these false ideas we have about humans that face some mental health challenges. And I imagine that once we can identify that and say, you know what, when this is maybe a trigger for me, and I know that when this happens, I go into this person that I don't like, you know, in myself. And so knowing that something in particular triggers you will allow you to maybe not go there and then be the best self that you can be. But again, I think the first thing is recognizing it, right? Recognizing it. And like you talked about in your first segment, being willing to reach out to recognize, you know, I'm different lately. Things are, I'm not the person I used to be. Something's going on. I'm curious. I reach out and try to get an answer to that. And oftentimes uh, at NAMI, at all, many of the partners at WISE that serve our the public at Rogers as we serve people. These are people that are coming to us, not just with a mental health challenge, but also this overlay of stigma 
So they may be acting in those ways I just described, avoidant of treatment, angry about having to be there. And it's maybe symptoms of their mental illness, but also maybe the impact of this deep stigma that runs throughout our culture that sometimes we're not even aware of. And so lately, a good portion of our work, both at WISE and the work that we do internally at Rogers, is to be able to support our workforce because it's hard day in and day out dealing with people that you care about but might be avoidant to to treatment or might be angry. All those things that, again, partially could be the symptoms of the illness, but partially are the impact of stigma. And so we're working to try to help the mental health workforce wherever it exists to be able to be in that place of compassion more consistently, to to get under those, those initial behaviors and manage their own way of showing up with people that are in need. And we're so big on education here at EIG. And it sounds to me that you're talking a lot about education, you know, reach out, get informed, understand what's happening, uh, understand what's available, the programs that might be available or how somebody can help you just get educated so that you can do something, whatever that something is. And uh, education makes me think of school teachers, right? You know, parents, uh, others who care for people. Couldn't we all use some of that support to be more compassionate? Absolutely. And and that's what we've discovered in our work. We were led to this compassion resilience work through the lens of what's happening in healthcare and how do we help healthcare providers show up with a more consistent compassion and understand why they're not. It's not a shame and blame game. It's just understand what's going on. But my goodness, school teachers, um, we've even worked with librarians across the state. Um, people come in. People want to not only check out books, but they want to feel safe when they're in a library. And so we're beginning to understand that all these people in the workforce that deal with the public face some challenges that may become compassion fatigued, we call it, and that if we want to be a community that is open and caring and supportive of all people, and especially from our perspective, people that are living with mental health challenges, then we have to help that workforce and parents, of course, (laughs) just ask parents after living through months and months of COVID, how difficult it can be at times to, to show up with the level of compassion you want with your kids. Absolutely. And, you know, it it always helps to have ideas of what you can do, right? So uh, you have these different compassion resilience concepts that I think are are really good and things that will really help people that are listening. So we're going to take a quick break. and, And when we return, we're actually going to have Sue share what some of these compassion resilience concepts are. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in. This is EIG, Milwaukee's philanthropic community, with your host, Jill Economo, on News Talk 1130 WISN. Welcome back to Milwaukee's philanthropic community, brought to you by Ellen Becker Investment Group. I'm your host, Jill Economo, and I'm talking in this segment with Sue McKenzie-Dix from Rogers Behavioral Health. So we talked about these compassion resilience concepts. And again, maybe we tell our listeners to go get some 
some paper and a pen so that they can write these things down because what we're going to be talking about is some really good stuff. So, Sue, can you uh, lay out for us some of these compassion resilience concepts? Sure, Jill. Thanks for that question. I, I think let's just start with that whole word compassion. Um, I think sometimes um, in our culture, we think about being compassionate as almost being a doormat, you know, letting anyone around us do anything, um, always trying to run other people's lives so we can help make everybody's lives better. And and this is actually just the opposite. So it's being compassionate. These You're going to see these concepts help you to be compassionate to yourself as you are learning how to be compassionate to somebody else. So let's just start with compassion. What does it look like in action? It means that I'm aware enough to see the pain around me. Best example that comes to mind for me is when someone is angry and yelling at me, can I be present enough to say, wonder what pain is beneath all that anger, right? Can I, can I move into that place that, that at least ask, could there be pain going on here? And then I want to be able to set aside all my initial first judgments about that person and actually be able to get curious enough to listen, to, to understand what, what's going on. And when I'm listening, I'm listening for what are the feelings that you're having right now? And what are the strengths? Because oftentimes when someone is in pain, we're, we're so focused on what they can't do that we miss some of the clues of the things that they can do. Like, for instance, the fact that you're even letting me know how you feel right now is a strength, right? So, so I'm, I'm starting to clue into people's strengths. And while I'm listening, I'm wanting to connect with their feelings for myself. That's empathy. It doesn't mean that I'm going to say, oh, yeah, Jill, I know just how you feel because I felt that way, too. It's more me realizing, oh, yeah, this pain is real because I've felt this pain before. So I'm kind of keeping myself in that place of connection. And then once I've listened and you've kind of told me this is what's going on with me and I'm going to start to feed back to you, it sounds like you're feeling really embarrassed or really frustrated I noticed that you said you've dealt with this before, you know, what worked for you before. So I'm using the strengths to, to bring out your wisdom. And I don't, I don't want to jump and give you advice. Now, most of us know that. Most of us would say, I hate when people give me advice, right? And yet we do it so naturally. And so this is the tip about advice. First of all, don't give it until the person really seems stuck. And usually that's like them saying, I don't know what to do. Can you help? Like really wait until someone asks for it and then ask for permission. I have some ideas. Would you like to hear them? Very different than let me tell you what happened last time. This is what I think you should do. Right. 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 Yeah. I think about a, uh, uh, a woman in my Bible study class at Northbrook that we call her our mentor mom and her name, name is grandma Kate. And she is, uh, uh, she's a grandma, obviously, as indicated by her, her name. And she gives great advice. And I remember her telling all of us one time that with her children, she, before uh, she would open her mouth, she would say, do you want me to give you feedback on what we're talking about? Or do you just want me to listen? And that is really, really, yeah, that's really helped me because again, sometimes as you were talking about, people just need to vent. They don't really want to hear what you have to say. They just, you know, just listen to me. Just let me express my emotion and just listen to me. 
Yeah. And so you can say, like, what's the next best step you'd like to take? What do you think you, you know, that person, it, it really gets down to me believing that you've got wisdom. And sometimes we get a little in a bad place and we just need someone to help us to come connect to our own wisdom. And so I'm going to ask, what are the next best steps for you? And I can offer, is there anything that I can do to support you in that? That's, that's where, you know, the help comes in is, is letting that person tell you what they need. So that's compassion. Doing that every day for the people that we care about in our lives can be really tiring. And some of the things that lead to it being tiring is this imperfect world we live in, right? There's, you know, I wish there were systems that supported you better, but I can't do anything about all those dang systems that don't have their act together. And here I see you hurting. And so if, if my job is to deal with people who are facing um, imperfect systems all the time, I'm going to get really fatigued. I might even not even want to hear another story because I'm fatigued in this imperfect world. And so some of what we do is help people to understand that the goal is to have a, a smidgen of optimism in the midst of imperfection, right? Not unrealistic optimism, but you know, I have some hope here. Let's talk about, you know, where I might be able to have hope being very realistic about the things that are imperfect around us, including myself. Like, I want to help you, but Jill, I don't think I have all it takes to be the best helper, but I'm going to do my best. That's me recognizing imperfection and finding optimism in the midst of that imperfection. And then I want to be really clear and realistic about the expectations that I have of myself in this world. Think about as a parent, most of us started parenting thinking, we wanted to be the very best parent ever. We, would, we wanted to recognize our kids' needs. We wanted to be able to help our kids succeed. And at some point, most of us began to say, I'm doing the best I can, and that's all I have to give. And you know what? These wonderful, resilient human beings do pretty well, even though we don't have it all together. That expectation of myself is going to make me a much better parent because when I'm constantly feeling like I don't live up to expectations, I'm going to be I'm going to be nasty to myself, right? And then I'm going to come across that way to the people around me. So, and in the mental health field, my goodness, think about day in and day out dealing with the very challenging and gray area of mental health. If I think I'm going to be able to help everybody every day, it's going to be hard for me to stay in the marathon of this wonderful work. Educators, if they were going to have success with every child every day, right? So expectations are pretty important. And then boundaries. We and, you know, anyone who listens to Brene Brown will will know how important boundaries are, right? Boundaries, we describe it is once I know all the things I want to say yes to in my life, all the things that are really important to me, I want to think of boundaries as the no's that support my yeses, right? So I really want to be, I'll give you an example from my own life. I really want to be present for my five children when they need me. I want to be the best thinker for them. I want to be fun. You know, all those things I want to be for my five children. Taking text at 2 a.m. in the morning when they're struggling with something that keeps me awake, and then I begin struggling with it, and then I realize in the morning that they've already moved on from something else, doesn't keep me in a, in a good place. So I learned to say, you know what, guys? I'm turning my phone off to text between 10 and 8 in the morning. I'll be there at 8 o'clock for anything you need. I believe in them, and I it's okay for me to set some boundaries around that. So 
we learn about boundaries. And again, healthy boundaries, right? Uh, I did a study on, on uh, a Bible study on healthy boundaries, and they talk about how that helps the other person. Yes, it helps us, but it really, really helps the other person as well. So healthy boundaries, really, really good. And we call it compassionate boundaries because you begin to learn that when you set boundaries in relationships, it's really a compassionate thing to do because you know the guardrails, you know, you can play within the guardrails. And then we look at what we call cultural agreements or behavioral agreements. So at Rogers, we have developed employee behavior agreements that came from employees saying, these these are the behaviors we'd like all the adults in our organization to, to display, to make it a place where we're really um, glad to work. And we could all agree not to be perfect at them, but we could all agree to these nine behaviors as being something we're going to work towards together and we're going to hold each other accountable to. Families can do that too. What are the behaviors we want in our family that we all think, gosh, if we did that most of the time, we would have a, a pretty cool family here that we'd be glad to be a part of. So let's let's identify those. So that's a part of us being able to show up with compassion is having some agreements around behavior. And then lastly is self-care. So we often say that this compassion resilience work is not about yoga and a candle. Not, I love yoga. I love candles. It's a part of my self-care. But if I don't, understand what compassion looks like, if I don't have clear expectations, if I don't know how to set boundaries, all that self-care isn't going to answer why I keep getting burnt out as a healthcare provider, as a parent, as a community member. So they all have to come together. And so self-care are the practices that most of us know about. I'm a better human being when I'm organized. When I feel pretty good about my own area of competence, I act pretty cool in the world. When I practice mindfulness, it helps me to be the person I want to be and to be the calm person in the midst of some of the crisis I face. When I have a sense of purpose, when I feel like I have meaning in my life and in the world, I'm able to show up for you as, as the person I, compassionate person that I would like to be. Um, taking care of our bodies, our relationships, all of that is part of self-care. And I would say one of the key ones that we really focus on is self-compassion. So as much as I want to be compassionate to you in this world, if I don't know how to be compassionate to myself, and it kind of goes right back to stigma, right? When I'm starting to behave in ways that don't feel like myself, if I start to, to denigrate myself versus be compassionate with myself, it's going to be very hard for me to reach out for help. And hard for me to reach out to offer you compassion as well. Wow, those are awesome, awesome things. I hope everybody listening was taking special note because that's that's good stuff there. Don't you guys have toolkits available? We do. We do. We have toolkits. It's it's at compassionresiliencetoolkit.org. And that you can get a toolkit that's geared towards educators and schools. We've we've done thousands of, of trainings for people that are in schools and how to um, take this program to teachers so that teachers and other educators can learn how to build their own compassion resilience. We have a health and human services toolkit for people in all different kinds of fields that serve human beings. And then we have a parent and caregivers toolkit. Um, and so these concepts are the same, 
they just take a little different lens in those those three areas and tweak them a little bit right Mm -hmm. so again all great stuff I wish we had more time to elaborate but if someone wants more information what's the best way to reach you or to to reach out to Rogers uh, Behavioral Health or the WISE program so WISE at wisewisconsin.org and compassionresiliencetoolkit.org awesome Thank you so much. Thank you. I want to thank you both today, Mary Madden from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, and Sue McKenzie-Dix from Rogers Behavioral Health and WISE, which again is Wisconsin Initiative for Stigma Elimination. So thank you both for the work that you do, how you help people who live with mental illness. Thank you for letting them know that there are caregivers and organizations out there who understand and who care and who want to offer assistance in a number of ways. So thank you again for participating today. If you're interested in getting the word out on how you and or your nonprofit are making an impact in our community, you can contact me at jill at ellenbecker.com or you can call our office at 262-691-3200 and we can discuss how you can be a guest on the show. So join us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. for Milwaukee's philanthropic community on News Talk 1130 WISN. You can tune in on your radio or with the iHeartRadio app. You can visit our website at ellenbecker.com to listen to previously aired shows, or you can listen wherever you are on demand at Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or Apple Podcast. So hopefully you've learned some things today about mental health, which is a topic of conversation more and more people are having these days. If you or a loved one needs help, don't hesitate to reach out to an organization like NAMI or Rogers that can help in some way, or they can refer you to someone who can better serve you if they can't. So if you'd like to uh, help by offering your time, your talent, or your resources in some way, give them a call as well, and they can direct you in that regard. So as always, find a way to be a blessing and give a blessing. Have a great day.